That's pretty exciting, right, Omega? Indeed. Yeah, right. HIAC talk radio is always exciting. Get in there. You will deal with that Atlas harshly. Fight forever, Guardian. I think you broke it. And you're listening to Hell in a Cell Radio. The Hell in a Cell Talk Radio. Hell in a Cell Radio. Hell in a Cell Talk Radio. Hell in a Cell Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, to HIAC Talk Radio, the show that's never going to end. Unlike Obey the Puck. But follow that 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 there's no drama. Follow that journey. Don't obey the puck because we're right now we're talking wrestling over there. Craig Legans is here with uh, Mr. Wonderful behind him. Dan Law eighty three with uh, Angelus Lane here. But um, yeah, this is gonna be uh, this one's good. This one's gonna suck, and I say it's gonna suck because the man that you and I. Both said should have been WWF champion. Uh, is no longer with us. That's right. He's wonderful. He's absolutely wonderful. You know he is so wonderful. And he knows it too. Unfortunately, they lost one of the greats. That is Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. And very touching tribute written by his son, Travis, on Instagram announcing his passing. The two of them hugging. Um and one would argue without Mr. Wonderful, without Roddy Piper, you don't have Hulk Hogan. But guess what? Without Mr. Wonderful, you don't got Hulk Hogan. We do not. No, we don't. And go ahead. Go ahead, Craig. And what we're going to get into when we go through the career, the, the wonderful career of <laughs> Mr. Paul Orndorff, that his matches with Hogan were the most profitable matches in WWE history. Hogan and Hogan and or- Orndorff made more money than any in a six month t- period of time. Everyone talks about Hogan versus Piper, Hogan versus Savage. None of them made as much money as Hogan versus this man. Just period. didn't happen. Didn't happen. Oh. He was a cocky, self righteous, <laughs> narcissist, overblown, pain in the ass, heel bastard. And I wouldn't have had it any different. And when he came to WCW in the 90s, you'd think it was over. He formed. And this is where my the, the hate for Paul Roma I don't understand. Because, okay, he shouldn't have been in the horseman. Sure. You and I both agree he shouldn't have been in the horseman. But pretty wonderful was a great goddamn tactic. Because <laughs> it was two of the cockiest, narcissistic, sons of a bitch characters ever in wrestling. Tagging together, beating and fighting with and cheating every tag team in WCW, which in the early nineties were pretty big tag teams. You got a, you got a who's who of tag teams, but he, but when he came to WCW, he thus brought with him the greatest. I will argue one of the greatest, if not the greatest theme in wrestling history. And it's the one I referenced earlier, but (laughs) yes, Mr. Wonderful, uh, you know, had that time in the eighties where he made Hulk. I'll say, where him and Hulk Hogan made each other stars, but he made Hulk Hogan a star because without without Piper or Mr. Wonderful, you do not get Hulkamania. You, no. you, there's nobody there that would have taken that spot. There's Sorry. No, there's no WrestleMania. He was the main event of the first WrestleMania. 
it wasn't Piper and Hogan, it was Piper and Orndorff yeah. versus Hogan. And again in the 90s when he came to WCW and he thought his career was over and then the tag team thing stopped and then some weird guy with a big he- helmet <laughs> had to come talk to him. I believe his name was Spivey, Gary Spivey. Yeah. I think I just pulled that out of my ass. I'm fairly, I'm pretending I don't know. I definitely know his name is Gary Spivey. Uh, thank you. <laughs> he comes in and tells him, no, you are Mr. Wonderful. He goes, I am Mr. Wonderful. I am Mr. Wonderful. Just wonderful. I, I was so glad that he was one of those classic names that when he came back, because mm-hmm. I was real young, that I was able to again see because he, he was wonderful. He was so good. One could argue that, or would not argue, but just say when his his team was his tag team with Paul Roma was Paul Order teaming with himself ten years ago. I mean, Cause yeah, when, yeah. When we go over later, and when we go, when we discuss the career of Paul. Do Ordor, it. This is we're doing it now. Let's do uh, it. Paul Roma was. Uh, the beginning of his career was like what Paul Orndorff was uh, uh, later in his career. Just a jacked up, incredibly handsome guy that looked great, wrestled great, and you know had a, a ton of potential. And unfortunately for Paul Roma, he never re- realized his potential. Paul Orndorff, however, did. Uh, he uh, when he started his his career. Um, Ali knew about him um, through the wrestling magazines, of course. He started in uh, in '76 uh, when I read that, uh, and he started late in his career wrestling wise. He was 27 when he uh, first uh, got his his big break, and he and just like with everything else that Paul Orndorff did, he uh, he was University of Tampa. And he ran. He had over two thousand career yards. He had twenty three touchdowns as running back. The Brandon Bull, which is what Gordon Soley called him, because Gordon Soley, and from Championship Wrestling from Florida, had a big football fan and had his eye on Paul Orndorff. You know, from the beginning, and Paul Orndorff's football career never took off, even though he was drafted in the twelfth round in the uh, nineteen seventy three NFL draft. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, he failed. Here's the thing, Dan. He failed two physicals. Uh, he with the Kansas City Chiefs, and I think another with the um, at the Oakland Raiders. He he. Um, I'm sorry, St. Louis Cardinals. He, uh, but he didn't. He never. He didn't pass an NFL physical, so he went into pro wrestling. And the teachers that he had, everyone had a a hand in him. Uh, Eddie Graham. Bob Backlund, Steve Kern, and Hiro Matsuda all trained Paul Orndorff. Now, Hiro Matsuda, ah. Ma- <laughs> yeah, ah, that's where it came from. Uh, Hiro Matsuda must have liked him because he didn't break his ankle the way he did Hulk Hogan's. But it would be wrestler kid. Yeah, but he realized that guy was tough, and uh, when he broke in, um, he he broke up in in Tennessee because another guy that had a great year for. Uh, for talent, not just Gordon Soley and Eddie Graham, who uh, who helped train Paul Orndorff. He began his career in Tennessee. It was Jerry Lawler that first saw the potential of Paul Orndorff, so much so that he dropped his Southern Heavyweight Championship 
to this new wrestler, this new young babyface named Paul Orndorff. Um, gave him his the Southern Heavyweight Championship um, within months of his debut. And Lawler won it back, but that was that gave him the rub. So right away, Paul Orndorff was a made guy just from having beaten Jerry Lawler. From just like that. And Lawler had that star touch, you know, whoever Lawler you add Paul Orndorff to the name of Mark Callis, uh, Charlie Wright, Undertaker, Papa Shango, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, just everyone that he's he's made Sid, uh, that he's <laughs> turned into made a star but you beat jerry lawler you're a made guy he goes from there that learning ground to mid-south uh as a young hot strong jacked looking baby face again incredibly handsome kid uh with the with the football background that you know bill watts loved and the booker at the time loved it as well that booker being ernie ladd because it was Ernie Ladd who Paul Orndorff beat for the North American Heavyweight Championship. Uh, and um, and Ladd won it back from him. And I, I think he was that was Ernie's way of kind of keeping him under wrap. He didn't he lost it to Orndorff and he regained it back. And he didn't have any didn't have him have a long reign or have him wrestle a whole lot of guys. He just wanted to see what he had with him. And obviously it was good enough. And that those two wins over those established veterans signaled his uh, his uh, impact and his uh, star on the rise. So we got a huge run in the NWA. And I even want to bet, because no one believed me, that at one point the NWA tag team champions were Paul Orndorff and Jimmy Snuka. Why would anybody bet against you on that one? <laughs> like because they're so indoctrinated with the WWF crap that they don't remember. They don't say, you know, these guys wrestled before they got to the WWF. They actually had, you know. Um, you know, they didn't wrestle like all of a sudden appear and wrestle to the WWF yeah. boys. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul Orndorff and Jimmy Snuka were the NWA tag team champions in uh, 1978. Uh, they had a five-month reign, and they, uh, they beat um, – Greg Valentine and Baron Von Raschke, and they lost it to Paul Jones and Baron Von Raschke. That son but, of a bitch. No. But you had these two guys, Jimmy Snook and Paul Orndorff, two young, incredibly handsome, incredibly jacked guys. And I, I can't say they were a great tag team. They were just two fiercely popular baby faces that looked great. Men loved them. With, and the thing that's a lost art, women loved them. Because people, for if you ever want to look back at old YouTube matches, and we always stress those on HIC talk radio, look how many women are in the audience. Not mm. the, the guys are in there, but the, the women are there to check out the guys. If you notice, in during the Attitude Era, the sound of the crowd changed in like the mid 90s to where if you look at all the old WCW NWA uh, film, you can hear the guys screaming. But yeah. you hear the kids and the girls scream and the ladies yeah. screaming. You hear that yeah. that high pitched. Yeah. And it's also mixed in with the old ladies that have been watching since the 1930s going, I'll fucking kill you, red flag, <laughs> son of a bitch. Um, and somewhere in the mid 90s, that shit changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And where it's practically non existent now. Yeah. Um, well, you, you I mean, wrestling fans are so welcoming to females. Yeah. Or 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 LGBTQ. Yeah. 
<laughs> but Paul Lorner from Jimmy Snuka, and after, you know, he's already he'd only been in the business for uh, less than three years, but he already had won two major singles championships and one half of the NWA World Tag Team titles. So Paul Orndorff was, in the days of the territory, he was one of the must-have guys for your territory. Um, and he got such a, because he had such a huge run in the NWA, he went back to the Mid-South, um, back under Bill Watts, and he won the North American Championship uh, again. And this time as a um, as a babyface, but he became part of two great angles, and what great and this is the beginning of the great booking mind of Bill Watts of what he did and how he he he, he got real life situations um, and fans to invest in this stuff, and that's how he made stars. Uh, he uh, he lost the Mid South the North American Heavyweight Championship to the Grappler. And he had a rematch coming up, but he overslept in the angle, and he he, he couldn't make oh, it. Oh, okay, okay. I was gonna say, you tell me so, real shit here. Yeah, yeah. But again, playing on what real life people. Oh, I I know how that is. So they say he overslept and he couldn't make it to the arena. So the grappler, he had a North American title match and he didn't have an opponent. So he grabbed the microphone and he, you know. Fans already knew who they wanted to, but Grappley said, he, hey, I'm not going to wrestle Ted DiBiase. I'm not going to wrestle Junkyard Dog, who were the top two baby faces in in the Mid-South at the time. I'm going to wrestle an easy opponent. And he picked a, uh, this kid who was a long, lanky kid who wrestled on TV a lot, but didn't win a lot. But people, but fans could know he was a scrappy guy, that he had something, but he just wasn't good enough. So the Grappler picked this e- this tall, lanky guy for an easy win. Well, that tall, lanky guy beat the grapple for the North American Championship. So the easy win turned out to be a star-making vehicle for Jake the Snake Robert. Ah, I was like, wait, I don't know who this is. What's the catch? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So Jake the Snake Roberts became a star by winning the North American Heavyweight Championship. And wow. Paul Orndorff, having blown his shot to regain the North American Championship, for the first time, that not only did that make Jake Roberts a star for the first time, for the first time, Paul Orndorff turned heel. Wow. And feuded and won the North American Championship from Jake the Snake Roberts and would be the North American champion as a heel. And then another great angle by Bill Watts um, that, again, fans identified with and they ate up. Uh, he... Uh, he had a North American championship and he had was he did he have it? No, he he had a feud with uh with uh Ted DiBiase. Right. And uh, he and he lost the title to uh to Ted DiBiase and he had a North American title match up and uh but he had car trouble. His car wouldn't start, so he couldn't make it to the arena. So he asked his, his good buddy Bob Roop, and he actually he didn't ask. Bob Roop said, I'll take it, I'll take the title shot for you. And he ended up beating Ted DiBiase. And we found out that Bob Roop was the one that sabotaged Paul Orndorff's car. That son of a bitch. And we all know in Bob Roop, Ted DiBiase, North American, that would change, that would lead to. And after that happened, Paul Orndorff turned face. And his good buddy Bob Roop screwed him and turned face. But we know with Bob Roop, after he defeated Ted DiBiase, 
and they were going to have a rematch for a loser leave town match. That's when Ted DiBiase turned heel for the first time after Junkyard Dog had defeated Barb Roop and Ted DiBiase turned on Dog. So this is all going on in the Mid-South under the auspices of Bill Watts. Taking real-life stuff people can relate to. Oh, I overslept. And then I had car trouble. And that's all. And But these things are star-making uh, turns all involved around Paul Orndorff. Made Jake Roberts a star. His loss to... Uh, him having car trouble and Bob Rube, North American champion, that turned Ted DiBiase heel for the first time. And from there, he went to the national stage uh, to Georgia, TBS, where he was a national heavyweight champion. And he was on the most popular uh, wrestling show. This is 1982, um, outside of world class, that there was seen in more homes. In, uh, in more, and syndicated in more places. This is the beginning of basic cable. So when someone, they they, re, they uh, renamed the Georgia Heavyweight Championship to the National Heavyweight Championship because it was being seen in more households than any wrestling uh, program in the United States. So Paul Orndorff was your National Heavyweight Champion. And it was a, it went a big deal. He actually gave up the title so he could focus on the World Heavyweight Championship held by Ric Flair. And their matches were amazing. They sold out the Omni. I'm shocked. Yeah. Ric Flair and Paul Orndorff had great matches. Go figure. But Paul Orndorff was unsuccessful. Didn't win the NWA Championship. Um, but he went back in and he regained the, North, the, uh, the National Heavyweight Championship. And it was then that Larry Zabisco, fresh off his feud with Bruno Sammartino, entered Georgia. Now, this is the first time that Larry Zabisco had any wrestled in a major territory outside of the WWF. And it was the first time he was doing it as a heel. So it was, it was interesting to see if Larry Zabisco had legs, if he could be a successful heel outside of the WWF. This wasn't new. This wasn't Square Garden, Philly. This was down south. This is the NWA territory. Well, he came into Georgia bragging about he, how he would be the, the national heavyweight champion in record time, but he couldn't beat Paul Orndorff. So Larry Zabisco did the next best thing. He, even though Larry Zabisco lost a match to Tommy Rich on the card, later on in the main event, killer Tim Brooks was, had a national heavyweight championship match against Paul Orndorff. And with the help of a chair and Larry Zabisco, Killer Brooks won the National Heavyweight Championship from Paul Orndorff. And then Larry Zbysko turned around, gave Killer Brooks $25,000, and Killer Brooks gave Larry Zbysko the National Heavyweight Championship. This was five years before Ted DiBiase did the same thing with Andre the Giant. But in Georgia, the National Heavyweight Championship, Larry Zbysko paid Killer Brooks $25,000 and bought the national heavyweight title. And again, Paul, Paul Orndorff, though, was in the middle of it. that. was a guy that he lost to. After that, Larry Zabisco's career took off as a, as a main event heel, not just in the WWF, but elsewhere. And that solidified his career. And uh, because when Bob Geigel, the NWA, NWA president, came in after a month and told Zabisco he was no longer champion, they had a tournament to have the crown of new. Uh, national champion, and Larry Zabisco won it. So there you go.
but after that, Paul Orndorff had uh, had enough of the South, and it was in late 1983 that he went to the, the WWF. And on January 23rd, 1984, on the exact same card that Hulk Hogan defeated the Iron Sheik for the WWF Championship, Paul Orndorff made his WWF debut in the second match against Salvatore Belomo. And within a month, though, Paul Orndorff was challenging Hulk Hogan for the WWF Heavyweight Championship. Because, again, he looked great, he talked great, he worked great in the ring. And where we've come with this so far, Dan, you saw everywhere that Paul Orndorff goes, he's the main event, he's in the middle of something big, he's starting or the result of a huge angle. So the guy just makes stuff happen wherever he appears. So much so, he came in. Man, he never had a manager before. Everywhere he went, never had a manager. He comes to the WWF. He's managed by, of all people, Roddy Piper. And that partnership, along with Bob Orton, hmm. uh, roughshod. They never called it a stable. Never called, never gave them a name or a faction. But those three were inseparable. You know, along with some other times with Dr. D. David Schultz. That's my bodyguard. <laughs> Mike, right there. Mine, 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 mine. Um, oh, I love him so much. Those three guys were the top heels in the WWF. And that, that resulted in the very first WrestleMania uh, main event. And Paul Orndorff turned face after Roddy Piper and Bob Orton left him laying in the ring. Bastards. Yes. And Paul Orndorff then started a feud with, with Roddy Piper, Roddy Piper and, and um, Bob Orton. And they crisscrossed the country and having ma- single matches and tag team matches. Orndorff even teamed up with Andre the Giant once to take on the team of Roddy Piper and Bob Orton. Nice. And um, it, some of their matches between Piper and Orndorff got so um, violent and heated, they had to bring in a special guest referee. And that was Bruno Sammartino. And it got so bad that at one point, Piper and Orton attacked Bruno. So then Orndorff teamed up with Bruno to go up against Piper and Orton. And random aside, when Bruno Sammartino talked about when he was brought back to the WWF, uh, when uh, Vince didn't have a whole lot of confidence in some of the houses that Hogan wasn't on, he brought back Bruno to feud with uh, the Randy Savage with Roddy Piper. and But he said the one guy, and San Martino even, t- even went up against a honky-tonk man, but he, San Martino only said the one guy that he that seemed to get it, that he didn't mind wrestling against out of all the new guys that Vince put him up against, he always mentioned this man. He said Paul Orndorff was the one guy out of all the guys they put me in with, Piper, Orton, honky-tonk, Randy Savage, Orndorff was a guy that I really didn't mind wrestling. He was a guy, and this is the biggest compliment of all from Bruno Sammartino. A lot of people, a lot of times it's said, but for this guy, it's the absolute absolute truth. He could have wrestled in any era. Oh, God, yeah. He he technically almost did. Yes, the way (laughs) his career was so long and so storied in so many different places. Uh, Yes, he could have. His WWF run historic, uh, came in as a heel, main event against Hogan, turned face, main event against Piper, turned heel again by turning on Hogan, and uh, 
and having Bobby Heenan as his manager again. And it was that turn on Hogan that became the biggest run of his career because after that pile, after he pile drives Hogan on a Saturday night uh, TV, on a Saturday, Saturday morning TV taping, their feud went crazy, culminating in the big event, August 28th, 1986, in a match that was not televised in the United States, that was pretty much ignored in the United States, but in Toronto, in the Exhibition Stadium, where the Toronto Blue Jays played, they got 74,000 people, 61,470 paid, a brand new North American attendance record, the largest crowd to ever see a professional wrestling match. This was a year before WrestleMania took place in Toronto. And it was all throughout Canada and broadcast there. It was came out on VHS. That's the only time you could have seen it was on VHS. And I believe now before, I don't know if Peacock has it, but it was on the old WWE Network. But that's the only place you could see it. But that was the largest crowd at the time in North American wrestling history. And it was just called the big event. This is before there, there was no before SummerSlam. Uh, again, this is a year before WrestleMania three, but this held the record for the largest crowd to ever see a wrestling match in North America. And the main event was Paul Orndorff versus Hulk Hogan. And to make it is is it on there? Is it is on Peacock. Okay, go to the cock, folks, if you want to see Paul Orndorff versus Hulk Hogan in the biggest, then the largest attended wrestling match of all time. But that man was the main event. And he came to the ring to the song Real American just to piss off the crowd. <laughs> Paul did? Yeah. Fans went crazy. Good. And then, That's uh, good. And then the uh, order of came out and even culminated in that Saturday night's main event. They had the cage match when they both dropped down at the same time. Um, and uh, they had to restart the match after commercial break and Hogan won that. But uh, that Saturday night's main event did a 7.4 rating on um, that particular Saturday. But and like I said, at the top of the, uh, the top of this program, the, the Hulk Hogan, Paul Orndorff feud was the most profitable feud uh in terms of gate in terms of um money drawn in terms of a crowd like i said seventy four thousand in toronto and they only it was only six months but that was the most profitable feud in wwe history hogan made more money with paul orndorff than he did with anyone more than with andre more than with piper more than with savage none of them this man is the one that drew more money with Hogan than any wrestler in professional wrestling history. And uh, that can never be understated. And you delved into his WCW. Uh, and it was, and I, I should point out, Dan, that it was during his feud with Hogan during that six month span that uh, Orndorff injured his right arm in a yeah. weightlifting. But because he was in the biggest run of his life, making more money than he ever had, than any professional wrestler had ever had at that point in his career, he didn't get the surgery because he didn't want to take time off. And because of that, his arm, his right arm never healed. 
and it atrophied. And, and by the time he got to WCW, which you can see, the right arm was significantly smaller than the left arm. But because of his incredible natural athletic ability, he was still wrestling at a high rate, still putting on great matches, making stars out of other people like Paul Roma and even won the WCW television championship. And he lost it to a damn good in a damn good match against Ricky Steamboat, who you can't have a bad match against, especially if you're Paul Orndorff. But um, those, um, his injuries uh, in cut of his neck and because of his, the useful, the uselessness of his right arm pretty much uh, kind of slowed down his career until he called it an end. Um, we're going to skip over the uh, Herb Abrams um yeah, yeah, no, no, we can't. Pay per and focus on the man who had an amazingly wonderful career. And the most amazing thing, Dan, and I can go, obviously, I can go on and on about his impact on professional wrestling. But what Paul Orndorff did for his entire career, I, I don't think can be understated because uh, there you can name him on one hand. He made his entire career, especially during the 70s and 80s going from territory to territory and going from the NWA to the WWF and continuing to be a big star. Usually guys that come from the NWA to the WWF, especially then can get lost in the sauce or have their names changed or be given a stupid gimmick. Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful spent his entire career as Paul Orndorff is given birth name. He had it from the his day one of his wrestling career, and he had it till the day he died. There is not, and it's, he doesn't have the most. It's not the most colorful name. It's not the most name that rolls off the tongue. Bullshit. <laughs> but Mister Wonderful Paul Orndorff, we're good. <laughs> but the fact that he never he never changed it. I mean, Gordon Sully loved calling him the Brandon Bull, Paul Orndorff, but he never changed his. He kept his name. The entire time, and not at, I mean, his birth name. Not everyone can say that in, in, in the world of professional wrestling, in the history of professional wrestling, but he's one who did. He's the one who did it his way, uh, his own way. Heel, face, face, heel. He made money. He made you scream. He made you, you, you cheered for him. You booed the crap out of him. Whatever he wanted you to do, he, he could make you do. You paid your money to see Paul Orndorff. You're getting the very best there was with him. Whether no matter what side of the fence he was on, he always looked great. Again, never had a bad match, and one tough son of a bitch. Ask Van Vader. Um, in the dark, dark days of WCW, when he came back, because he worked uh, at the power plant legitimately. Yeah, uh, kayfabe and non kayfabe. Um, mm-hmm. Worked at the power plant training wrestlers who were coming up yeah. in WCW. And he was involved in the angle with uh, Natural Born Thrillers, who immediately got on TV and started making fun of their trainer, who later revealed was Mr. Wonderful, uh, and teaming with the Filthy Animals, which furthered his stinger, his neck and back injury, which took him out completely because he went for a pile driver. And he landed funny, and that was it. Yeah. Uh, but through all the darkness and the bad stuff, Mr. Wonderful came out under that hood. People were like, oh, my God. And he still, you know, the, you're talking about the atrophy. 
Yeah. He's still jacked though. He, it was that still looked like Mr. Wonderful. You're like, oh, someone's gonna die tonight. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was almost him. But yeah. um, yeah, it's it's really it sucks sometimes when you talk about wrestling and wrestlers and and um, I don't want to compare it to in in greatness wise, but although uh, the China thing, yeah, in the day she was ridiculed, made fun of. Everybody, it was the butt of all her jokes. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. China was literally, no matter how many ways you slice it, trailblazer in the industry. Yeah. yeah. Period. That's it. And unfortunately, it really wasn't acknowledged mm-hmm. until after her passing. Right. And that sucks. And what makes it suck more is that the WWFE kind of yeah, cast her aside because of personal reasons. Yeah, God forbid someone fucks on screen, Hulk Hogan, mm-hmm. and say so you yeah. did get paid for it. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah, Mister Wonderful is the same way. There's no bad blood there, Mm-mm. but Mister Wonderful does not get talked nearly enough about no. his contributions to that wrestling boom in the '80s. It, he just doesn't. No, there is literally. I said it earlier. I will double down. There is no Hulkamania without without Paul Orndorff. No. Nope. There's no money making heels without Paul Orndorff because uh, you, like I just said, he can draw you a sellout as a face, could draw you a sellout as a heel, and he did both of those things throughout his entire WWF run. And uh, because no one looked like him, no one could perform like him. I saw him wrestle in the Spectrum against Sergeant Slaughter as a heel. And I saw him wrestle uh, against Bob Orton as a babyface. And the crowd was just as loud. When uh, Slaughter, this is right before he left. And this is right when o- and, uh, Hogan uh, had just been champion for like less than a month. And they had a match at the Spectrum. And Orndorff came out in his robe and he wouldn't take it off. And Slaughter was getting impatient. So... He attacked Orndorff and he clotheslined him and he took off Orndorff's um, robe and Orndorff was selling the clothesline, rolling around the mat and Slaughter put on the robe and he was, this is a house show. So this, and this, if you weren't there, you missed it. And so he was posing in the ring with Orndorff's uh, robe on and then he took it off and blew his nose in it, threw it away. And Orndorff is still selling and Slaughter was taking was taking his time taking off his he took off his hat and he was doing a little dance and then he took off his belt and he put the belt between his legs and started doing all this and and then Orndorff got up and he saw what Slaughter did to his robe and he said he's like my robe and you know and the fans were laughing at him laughing at at the heel because Slaughter had had blew his nose in Orndorff's robe. The next time, Slaughter, I mean, Orndorff was a face going against Bob Orton. Every time he hit Orton's broken arm, the place went nuts. Absolutely crazy. And he would point to the guy, you want me to hit? And he would hip toss him. Yes, hit him again. <laughs> flip all, Orndorff all, and flip Orton all around. And Orton was begging off. And um, Orndorff was hitting him. And then he goes, wait. And then he points to Orton's arm said, like, do you want me to hit that? I was like, yeah, no, okay. And then he starts hitting Orton's arm. But both times, 
whether heel or face, he had the audience in the palm of their whatever he wanted them to do. If you want me to, if I want you to boo me, I'm going to do something for you to boo me or to laugh at me if something bad happens to me. Cheer. I mean, he'd be all over Orton. And then just, and it went throughout the whole match. And Orton was selling because he's Bob Orton. But then he would just, or in the order, would just wait. He'd be working on his leg and his, and his leg. And then he'd go, do you want to hit his arm? And they're like, yes, go back to the arm. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, yes, kill him. <laughs> but uh, well, no wonder was, his arm was broken for 28 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's that you, you got to work the gimmick. But this man right here, uh, big loss. And, you know, we had heard, uh, not that we were prepared, but um, I think a couple weeks ago, I uh, heard never that he wasn't. Prepared. Yeah, never prepared. I mean, you could be you could be prepared, but you're never ready. Put it that way. Yeah. Um, uh, that he was in in poor health and that he wasn't uh, doing uh, really good. And that's when the first time I heard people talking about or having, you know, what a great career he's had you know you, you think of what the territories and why you know we started this the wrestling historian part of hic talk radio because there's so many great things that happen in the territories uh that people don't know about and that are still affect wrestling to this day and, and I, I mourn for it because it's really where careers were made because there's nothing because part of the reason we're seeing so much garbage in one particular federation because as soon as someone's ready or they think they're ready, we'll put them on TV. And we know they're not ready because there's no territories. And I'm not talking indies or like a top flight wrestling school. There's no territories where someone can get good, can learn from their mistakes, can Jerry Lawler, Ernie, there's no Jerry Lawler, Ernie Ladd, you know, anymore. But people that uh, work with a young kid who's got a ton of talent, but he doesn't know what to do with it. So, Jerry Lawler can teach him one thing, put him put up a, a belt on him, see how he does, how he does with it. Ernie Ladd can teach him something else. Slow down, kid. You're doing this too fast. Work this more, you know, patience, that kind of thing. To the NWA, where, you know, a Paul Jones and a, a mass superstar can teach him more about being over as a babyface. To Bill Watts. You know, using real life angles to get you over. Okay, you got car trouble. Okay, you overslept. So we're going to give the belt to Jake, and then you're going to take it from me. I want you guys to work together. Uh, and as we say goodbye to the wonderful Mr. Orndorff, we say hello to uh, this segment. Uh, we spent so much time talking about the great history of Mr. Wonderful and the territories. And um, what makes wrestling a story and wrestling a story is we can go back to those uh, self-same times, those time-honored times where territories ruled the landscape of professional wrestling, where you can see great wrestling on multiple channels up and down your TV dial. You can go across the country. On one day, you can see wrestling from Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, Texas, uh, the Midwest, the Southwest, WWF, NWA, AWA, uh, absolutely amazing. And we're going to talk about one of those times now. Gentlemen, ladies, this is the Wrestling Historian. Um, it's going to focus on two things uh, today. Uh, well, today, um, 
wrestling wrestling history, uh, two men that will always be linked for whatever reason. Well, we know what reason they're linked, but um, it just so happens that they were born on the exact same day at the exact same year. And this is a big one for both of them. So happy 50th birthday to both Joey Styles and, oh, wow. Bubba, and Bubba Ray Dudley. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, Excuse my me. God. Roscoe is also misbehaving. Speaking of, oh, my God, Roscoe, <laughs> clear out of here. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I don't feel that uh, Joey Styles gets a bad rap. Get out. Sorry, folks. <laughs> Joey Styles gets a bad rap uh, for his stuff he did uh, later on, but man, he carried ECW for years on his own. People don't understand Dan or realize the difficulty. You know, we grew, we've grown up as wrestling fans on commentary, seeing a guy do play by play and someone doing color and doing commentary. Joey Styles did both. Yes, for years. Yes, uh, damn near possible, especially when you think of. Gorilla and Bobby or Jim Ross and the King and uh, how that dynamic goes. One guy doing both and putting guys over and and selling uh, a maneuver or, a, or an angle. Uh, Joey Styles is what made ECW ECW as much, if not more, than the wrestlers. Not just, oh my God, but because he was explaining to fans and because he picked e Every every TV um, show that ECW had, he knew he was talking to people who have never seen it before. Yeah. So he didn't just automatically, he introduced the wrestlers that were there or had a quick backstory. Now you watch a wrestling show, you could be somebody in the ring and we, there's no introduction. We have no idea who they are or why they're there or anything. Joey filled in all the blanks. And he treated every wrestling show as if you're seeing ECW for the first time. And that's what you want from any wrestling commentator on any show. And uh, Joey did that. So happy 50th birthday to Joey Styles and to the guy that he's called all more of his matches than anyone else, Bubba Ray Dudley, a.k.a. Mark LaMonica. Uh, but the only date, uh, actually, it's, we, we usually do the show on a Wednesday. Today's Tuesday. Uh, but this particular thing happened uh, July 14th, tomorrow, but July 14th, still a huge day in the history of professional wrestling. July 14th, 1984, Dan, was Black Saturday. Uh, yes, I laugh with delight that it, <laughs> that it happened and that... Not only did they the NWA get it back, they had to pay for it, basically help fund WrestleMania. But the fact that all these arguments about what was better and what was um, uh, better quality wrestling in those days, but you put WWF TV on NWA territory, TBS. Nope. You got, you got your answer. For those of you unfamiliar, um, July 14th, in the morning, Saturday morning, July 14th, 1984, uh, Georgia fans or Miss fans of Georgia Championship Wrestling turned on at 9 a.m., 9.05, to see their favorite wrestling show. And there was Vince McMahon taking the mic from uh, Fred Miller. With his S-eating crin. Yes. 
and saying, <laughs> welcome, folks, to a brand new era of professional wrestling. And uh, you retreated to WWF matches. And right away, um, Vince knew that the, the people knew that they had been had. Well, back we'll, we'll back up. Vince was in the middle of expanding WWF. We're uh, three months in to uh, Hulkamania. Hogan had just won a title in January. Vince has let everybody know he's coming after everybody. Yes. Uh, Vern Gagne politely turned him down. Uh, Fritz von Erich, less so, told him to go fuck himself. So Correct. He <laughs> went to, <laughs> he went to uh, the NWA. He wanted another national TV outlet. He wanted a, uh, to have a national TV contract that TBS had at Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um and because uh, the Georgia Championship Wrestling was owned uh, by the Briscoes, Jim Barnett, and Ole Anderson, uh, Jack and Jerry, the original Briscoes, and Jim Barnett. Uh, but because those two and Jim Barnett uh, were tired of Ole Anderson, like anyone who's ever known Ole Anderson would get tired of him eventually, uh, sold their shares to Vince, so he had controlling interest in Georgia Championship Wrestling. Uh, and once the sale was done and Vince debuted July 14th, 1984, uh, that's when the Briscoes and Jim Barnett realized that they had been had because Vince immediately went back on his deal to show nothing but original programming because he started showing old WWF shows. And this is 1984, so you already they was already syndicated, so you'd already seen these matches if you watched wwf anyway because like i said the big top of the wrestling historian on saturday morning just flipping the channel you can watch wrestling from wwf mid-atlantic georgia world-class southwest awa all in one day so with w with vince owning georgia championship wrestling you can see the same match four times in one day so they realized that they had been had but the biggest thing that happened, and Dan just pointed out that you, you're introducing WWF fans to on an NWA show, they're going to say nope. The switchboard at TBS, Turner Broadcasting, still to this day got more phone calls asking, begging, pleading to have Gordon Soley back than they had at any time in the history of TBS. And the ratings bore that out because the ratings were dismal. And uh, they gave uh, Turner, eventually gave a Saturday afternoon slot to Bill Watts for his Mid-South programming. And Ole Anderson had started his own George Championship Wrestling from Georgia program and put that on at 7.30 before the WWF program and those two, the 7:30 a.m. time slot and Bill Watts's afternoon time slot, outdrew Vince's WWF time slot, and he was losing money hand over fist. So he turned to back to Jim Barnett and say, "I kind of made a mistake. Could you take it back?" Jim Barnett, however, kind of gave Vince over to Jim Crockett and say, "Why don't you?" you know, pull his leg for a while. It, I'm, you know, I'm being done being pulled mine. Jim Crockett, as Dan said earlier, bought Georgia Championship Wrestling from Vince 
for the low, low price of $1 million. And it was that $1 million that Vince McMahon used to fund the very first WrestleMania. So while that decision helped put WWF and Mr. Wonderful on the map, what it also did, um, it gave when he gave time slash to Bill Watts and Ole Anderson, it opened the door for National Cable Atlas to have wrestling on them. And that made it wrestling an even bigger worldwide phenomenon across the nation. And you had the AWA was on ESPN and also on ESPN, World Class, USWA. Uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling was on the USA Network yep. uh, at the time. So uh, cable, basic cable was getting more wrestling on it because it didn't cost a whole lot to produce. They were already done in local um, in local outlets and you put it on your basic cable, instant ratings. So while the uh, Black Saturday failed in uh, one of Vince McMahon's few failures when it comes to uh, wrestling and uh, enterprising, it opened up uh, wrestling to a whole new audience and national cable and professional wrestling uh, were joined and became the uh, the 80s were the biggest boom of wrestling since the 50s. And that, I'm sorry, did you want to say something? I was going to say, it just, when I, when I see something that a group of people or a lot of people don't like in wrestling and, and you don't think you have any power, just remember Black Saturday when yeah. almost immediately the phones were ringing mm-hmm. and demands were met. Yeah. I mean, hey, someone had to pay for it, <laughs> but that came fast. Yeah. So, remember, wrestling fans. Yeah, you want real change. You want me to stop bitching about the wife beater working and impact. <laughs> you have the power. Exactly. And and uh, and the power did uh, happen in it, but July fourteenth. Uh, but by September, WWF in Georgia was no more. So. So who yeah. won? <laughs> <laughs> who really won? Who won really? Ratings were, uh, and on it goes. WWF never really uh, performed well in the South or in, in NWA arenas, and um, and likewise NWA didn't didn't do well up north until a certain yeah. Yeah, I was to say with a section, the exception of Philadelphia. Yeah, and Baltimore. Uh, and Baltimore, Baltimore, yeah. and Philadelphia were. South enough from the Northeast. <laughs> I would say Philly was that line, right? Yeah. So Philly was that line where both could put crowds mm-hmm. in either of the arenas. Yeah. Uh, not really Baltimore. No. But above that line, it was yeah. the NWA was like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess with the smart fans were up North, the, the ones in uh, Baltimore and Philly, they, uh, they're the one. They're the first ones to to uh, to, uh, to cheer the heels, and uh, <laughs> and ruin wrestling and, forever. And ruin wrestling and ruin the careers of the of the dynamic dudes. Thank you. And that, yeah, it's our fault, <laughs> <laughs> gentlemen and ladies, is a wrestling historian. Um, I want to thank uh, Mr. Wonderful for the first time I used a green screen on uh, on the HIAC. Um, that's why we relate because I couldn't decide on which 
Paul Orne, Mr. Mitch, which Mr. Wonderful I wanted to use for this segment. Um, he yeah, was I should a, have had one too now that I'm thinking about that's it. That's okay. Uh, he was a giant in the, the industry. It was sad to see him go, uh, but we're glad that I got a chance to, to impart some of his great career for those of you who didn't know. Uh, for all, or, if you, or if you only knew him from his WCW run or if you only knew him from his WWF run, he had a career way before that that was incredibly impactful. And just like the man he was, an impactful human being, uh, in and out of the ring. Where can people follow you, sir? They can follow me if they want, if they so choose. Should. Should follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at Craig Lagon, C-R-A-I-G-L-I-G-G-E-O-N-S. Follow me, unless you're somebody that I'm talking to on Facebook <laughs> and the Comic Book Gurus page right now. At Danlaw83, the HIAC Talk Radio Network is at HIAC Talk Radio on your podcast app. That's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Search, like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. If you want to watch us live, we're here on Twitch. If you're watching us on YouTube and you want to go to Twitch, go there. If you're on Twitch, watch us, go to YouTube.com slash Danlaw83. Greg Lagans. No, actually, he's over there. I'm the above average comedian, Daniel Colachico. See you next week. Bye.